the incomparable. Number 562. April 2021. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. Um, nine years ago, John Syracuse and I met alone, just the two of us, for episode 84 of The Incomparable, 478 episodes ago, to discuss all the films of Hayao Miyazaki, many of which I hadn't seen. Um, <laughs> which is really good. Puts John at the advantage, quite frankly. Uh, but then what happened after that is that we set about to watch all of them. And uh, we've seen all 11 feature films directed by Hayao Miyazaki. We even threw in a movie that he didn't direct, and yet we called it Miyazaki Club anyway, which uh, seems like cheating now. But we did it. So it's too late now to go back on that. Anyway, um... We are here to say goodbye to Miyazaki Club, essentially. Uh, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to let it end with our last episode. I wanted to to round back around to do yet another episode that is about all the films of Hayao Miyazaki, um, with uh, more than just John Syracuse. And now the the graduating class of Miyazaki Club is three mm. people. It's a very small graduating class. It's kind of a weed out class. Everybody else had senioritis. They're off doing something else. John Syracuse is, of course, back with me, uh, 478 episodes and uh, nine years later. Hi, John. Yeah. Second time's the charm, I guess. Yeah. Just, just going to keep doing this one until we get it right. And my fellow <laughs> graduates here, Steve Lutz. Hello. Hello there, Jason. I am very excited to matriculate. I have my final exam paper here. As you see, I've just drawn an extreme uncomfortable close-up of a large ruminant. Do I pass? A plus, but I'm not yes! the professor. I'm one of your classmates, so I don't get I don't have that authority. We'll see what John oh. says. And Aline Sims is also here. Hello. Hello. This is only slightly smaller than my high school graduating class, so I'm feeling comfortable here. Nice. John, do you have any uh, opening thoughts about this journey that we've taken? I thought I would start with you since uh, I mean, you I often get, do. I guess we'd have to open by saying I think it's kind of pessimistic optimistic to consider this the wrap-up of the Miyazaki club because he's making a new movie right now after his fifth retirement right right to be so, fair he is probably also pessimistic about it <laughs> right right anyway I feel like uh, if if all goes well according to my uh, outlook we will be back here eventually we'll talking about another Miyazaki movie a someday. but for now it is or fine a certificate to... program yeah I would say um the biggest change between now and 2012 and for actually most of the run of our Miyazaki club episodes is at least in the U S well, actually no worldwide. It's way easier to get these movies now because they're streaming. Mm -hmm. They're on HBO max in the U S and they're on what are they on Netflix in the rest of the world? Most yeah, of the rest of the world. Netflix. And when we did most of these episodes, it was literally, Hey, you want to buy a Blu-ray? <laughs> Cause that's what you got. So it's, we've come a long way and I feel like, uh, Part of our discussion now is going to be maybe highlighting some things people can go and watch now that it's a lot easier for people to get these things than it was when we were doing it. You know, hopefully we'll be back here talking about more Miyazaki movies, but in the meantime, it is good to uh, do a wrap up on what we've all seen. Um, actually, one, I'll, th I'll throw this out there to the other uh, people on the show. This is a type of thing that Jason would uh, you normally ask us to do ahead of time and may have been planning to ask us to do on the fly, but I'm going to give you some time to prepare. I would love it if towards the end we all sort of listed our top three Miyazakis. Ah, I'm way ahead oh, of no. you, John. I've been rewatching over the last week or so all of these. Although rewatching is kind of the wrong term, I think, because I'm watching the dub for the first time most of these. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like watching another movie for 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 many of these because the sub 
experience I find is so different from the experience of watching with the dub, even if the dub is not that different from what's actually in the subtitles. Um, but I've been doing that for purposes of, of organizing my thoughts as to what I think my top uh, Miyazaki movies are that we have seen. And in fact, I even managed to squeak Whisper of the Heart in there today. I guess I'm kind of angling to be valedictorian. You hear that, Jason? He watched the subs and the dubs. Yeah, he's got me beat. Yeah. He's got me beat. <laughs> Whisper of the Heart, Steve, you weren't on that episode. so I was not. I went back and, and did the homework. I feel like we should have a mini episode where Steve just tells us what oh, he man. thought of Whisper of the Heart. Did you I'll enjoy you. meeting Grandpa and his musical friends? <laughs> Grandpa and his musical <laughs> friends who just kind of wander in uh, to any given room with their instruments and Indeed. start accompanying whatever happens to be going on in that room. So it was, it, it was fortunate that they happened upon somebody playing violin and somebody singing in the same room on that, that one moment. It's very lucky. I, John, you will um, be shocked to know that I have already ranked them up 1 to 11. <laughs> I, I, I have yeah, done no. the same, in fact. <laughs> I had my whole family force rank them uh, just to get an idea of what they thought. Although I got only as far as Whisper of the Heart in my rewatch. So the ones that I really needed to rewatch in order to really get an idea of how I felt about them, which is to say the really weird ones. Yeah. I did not get to, but I, I so those ones are, those ones are a little more vague in my, my ordering, but the first six, seven, eight of these films, I have a pretty strong feeling about, so. We'll see how that goes when we get there. Aline, you've got some time to think about about it for your list. I'm going to pull up a list right now. Yeah, That's go. why I said top three. Like, it's too much yeah. to rank them all. But, like, on the fly, you can probably come up with your favorite three and then maybe, you know. Any opening thoughts, John? And I do actually have some opening statements. And I think oh, we no. should talk about <laughs> I think we should talk about Miyazaki more generally before we dive into the specifics and revisit, you know, our thoughts sure. on the movies. Lay it on me. I was thinking about, like, you know. We've seen all these things now. What makes a Miyazaki movie? What makes them special? All, all that good stuff. Just sort of probably the same stuff we discussed nine years ago, but I have no recollection of that episode whatsoever. In fact, I pulled up my notes about it, and it was like two lines of text. <laughs> um, maybe I'm just repeating what I said then. There's two main things I was thinking about but when, when, you know, when I think of Miyazaki movies in my head. One of them, for sure, is a topic that's come up in most of our episodes. His general disinterest question mark i don't know if that's the right word his general disinterest in conventional and or western storytelling structures um you get the idea uh both from watching the movies and from watching some behind the scenes that he just starts with a scene and then he does another scene and then he does another scene and eventually he does enough scenes that the length equals a movie length and he stops uh which is not conventional plotting for stories uh the amount of time given to a scene doesn't necessarily correlate with how much it advances the plot which again is not traditional uh rule of thumb for storytelling and in general he luxuriates in filling all of his movies with the mundane uh, all animated with about as much care as whatever the big climax is in the movie you know so putting on your shoes versus the big uh, rescue mission at the end pretty much the same importance and length and time and money spent on them and I was thinking about why does that work? Because if you try to plot out some of the movies, like write down the plot of Howl's Moving Castle, it's like, well, um, I mean, yeah. can you even do it from memory? Does it have any kind of conventional structure? No, right? I had trouble doing it like an hour after we watched it. <laughs> right. But so, so you know, so that, that's, that, that on one hand, we can talk about that all the time as movies. And on the other hand, well, then, but why, why do we like them then? Why, if he's like breaking all these rules and, and not, or not, at least not com complying with what we expect from a story in a movie. And what I was, you know, what I came up with after thinking about it for a while is that more or less it's because, 
what sort of what saves his movies is that every scene is engaging. So even when they don't hold together to form a particularly coherent story, we accept it because each individual moment is a delight. And a long series of delights can't help but form a delightful whole. Even if at the end, like Steve, you finish watching, you're like, so what happened in Hell's Moving Castle? <laughs> it doesn't matter. How can you have a series of delights one after the other and, and take them all together and say, okay, every bit of it was a delight, but together I don't like it. It really, I mean, it takes a lot to get to that level. Uh, and the second thing I was thinking about Miyazaki movies is how they how they make the viewer feel. Because given his general, you know, non non-compliance with our expectations in pretty much every regard uh not just storytelling but every regard uh what you know when i think about miyazaki and how they're different from the movies it's feelings that it engenders in me and i'm sure that's different for everybody and i'd love to hear what kind of feelings you all get from it but uh, one again one highlighting for myself personally that i've heard echoed by other people and it's a strange feeling to attribute to it's not just a movie franchise but an entire like artist's work over decades Right. Um, I guess you could do like Hitchcock, which is probably like a, an adjective or a feeling that you could assign to Hitchcock. Right. But anyway, for Miyazaki, that feeling is coziness, which is a yeah. very obscure, low, sort of a low importance feeling, let's say, in the sort of Hollywood universe. Um, and there's just so many examples. I mean, I'm kind of going from recency bias because we just did Porco uh, Rosso, but Porco's hideout in the little cove with the island and his little tent and his chair mm -hmm. and his plane floating and his feet up on the thing. Uh, Ursula's cabin in the woods in Kiki. The sleeping room in Spirited Away. Right. The the, the hot soup, uh, the, the ramen inside as the storm is raging outside in Ponyo. And the, the one I was thinking of that's the most absurd, but it shows that it's impossible for him not to put this in all of his movies, is even in Nausicaa, which is one of the most conventional and probably one of the least seemingly cozy movies he has made. Uh, there's a scene where she's lying down with the clear ohm shell thing on top of her as the pretty white fluffs of, of deadly toxic spores float down and land around her <laughs> on top of the nice canopy. It makes a nice blanket on top of her. Right, and, it, and she's under there, and it's like you're in your own little protected world watching the little deadly snowflakes fall. Right, He can't help but make things, uh, make scenes that... In, that engender coziness in the viewer to make you feel those sort of warm fuzzies which is such a weird overwhelming feeling for a franchise it's not to say it's going to be the same for everybody but when i think about what differentiates it i really can't think of another director or another body of work that taps so heavily into the coziness vein and there are many other things that resonate with me about the movies as well obviously but but this one stood out to me so those th those are my two overall thoughts on miyazaki and what makes him interesting and weird uh, what what do you guys think? What what kind of it, what kind of feelings do you get from Miyazaki or and or how do you what makes his work like how do you file it in your brain? What makes it different from other stuff that you know that you've seen? I think it's pretty. Um so there are definitely those scenes of coziness. I, I think in a lot of cases they exist to counterbalance intensity. Um, not in every movie, but a lot of them, because if you think about like Howl's Moving Castle, right? After um, after Sophie comes in and kind of cleans everything up, it's a really cozy, neat space. Um, but then you pair that against, uh, you know, the end of the movie when the bombs are falling and Howl is a like bird monster thing and and how intense and scary that is. I think that that it kind of exists to, I think, give the audience like a break in a lot of cases and also to 
you know, like in psychology where the the theory is that in order to feel high highs, you have to feel low lows in, in your life because then you have something to compare it to. And I feel like that's in a lot of cases where the coziness comes in, like we get these these really nice scenes so that later on we can really feel the intensity of, you know, a climactic moment. But everything is beautiful. And you know, watching it, that no, there isn't a single cell, there's not a single frame that hasn't been thought through. And even if he has no idea what the story actually is, and the movie is incomprehensible, um, it's pretty. It's nice to look at. It would be um, HBO Max has um, just like a looping um, thing of uh, of scenes from Miyazaki movies because it's just so pretty and, <laughs> and calming. Um, in these cases, they're, they're not showing bombing um, and nice to watch. And so sometimes I put that on and just sit there on repeat, listening to nature sounds and and watching scenes from the movies just because they're they're just gorgeous. The color, the contrast, the composition is all wonderful. Yeah, and like I said before, he, like he gives time to those pretty elements yeah. in equal measure to the intensity, regardless of what does has anything to do with the story. Like if you just put like stop watch it, how much time is spent looking at a tree? watching someone get their clothes on and get up out of their bed and walk down the stairs. Like it's just a huge amount of time and things that do not advance the story. And most of those things are, uh, you know, the, the sort of letting the movie breathe or whatever, but they're beautifully done. Like that's the, the, you know, the most beautiful sneaker and shoelace tying scene you've ever seen. Right. And that's, and those are just the mundane ones like that you wouldn't think would be interesting. And of course, if obviously if it's Kiki laying down on the field with the wind blowing across, it's inherently beautiful. And then it's done beautifully on top of that. So it's just beauty on top of beauty. And again, just how long does that scene need to go on? Way longer than it needs to. to if you just needed to establish Kiki's on a hill listening to the radio, that takes like two seconds. They spend like a minute and a half there because like, I feel like that's, you know, the important part of the story, it seems like as far as he's concerned is not the story part but it's everything that happens between the story and i guess what you're saying like to to decompress and or sort of stretch out before you know in the case of kiki like seven moments of intensity across two hours all right let me take a break and tell you about our sponsor this episode of the incomparable is brought to you by gabby when it comes to car and home insurance so many people know they deserve better so they're putting their policy to the test they're turning to gabby Gabby actually stands for Get a Better Insurance. And getting better insurance with Gabby means finding a better price for the same insurance coverage. I didn't even know anything like this existed. It's a comparison platform with real rates. They give you apples to apples comparisons of your current insurance coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers like Progressive, Nationwide, and Travelers all in one place. You can use your insurance information to get started. And in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage you currently have and it's totally free to use. I signed up for Gabby. I plugged in the information about my current auto and home insurance. I came back the next day and I had a big long list of quotes from other companies about what they would give me and I could compare them to my existing rate. And also there are a few companies that are like, we will not give you a rate through Gabby. We will do it only directly. Gabby pre-fills all of the queries so you can press a button and it'll load up and get your query faster from those sites too. Super convenient. I'm going to tell you a little secret. 
we're really good at uh, dealing with our insurance. And uh, what I found was the peace of mind that my insurance policy is actually the best one. But is yours? That's the question. Gabby can tell you the answer. Gabby's customers save $961 per year on average. Wow. And they'll never sell your info. No annoying spam or robocalls. Put your policy to the test like so many others. Get a better insurance with Gabby. Totally free to check. There's no obligation. Go to Gabby.com slash Snell. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash my last name, Snell. Gabby.com slash Snell. Thank you to Gabby for supporting The Incomparable. I think coziness is a, is a really good way to put it, but I think even more broadly, um, I think something he captures extremely well is sort of the the feeling of childhood, um, you know, and and that's a lot of that coziness there is is that sort of childlike feeling of being insulated from danger and trouble, I, even when these you know these these kids are in these very dramatically you know troubled situations from time to time there's always these scenes where you know you get the impression that you know everything's going to be fine and we have these moments where we you know we're we're curled up in a sleeping bag or we're enjoying our soup or whatever it is and i think some of the things like um you know closing in on tying a shoe or spending a really long time watching a kid looking at polywogs ties into that as well because when you're a child obviously every moment is you know something new and and therefore you know it carries a a, a, a a a great deal of importance that you know you the little things that you see you know as you're an adult are, are things that are you know brand new to a child and so they they spend far more time you know paying attention to things like tying a shoe um and and as in addition to that i would say that the sort of haphazardness of the the way that he makes a film uh, where, you know, okay, well, I guess now we're going to uh, look at goats and then yeah, a little while later we're going to be, you know, falling down a cliff. And then it, it, it's, there's sort of a stream of consciousness there that I think it sort of encourages you to just kind of go with the flow of what the movie's going to throw at you. And that too also ties back to childhood where you're, you know, you don't have a whole lot of control over what's happening to you and things just sort of flow by and, and it's a little bewildering, but at the same time, you know, you don't really understand the, the import of it all. So it, it's, it's not necessarily frightening. It's just kind of weird. Uh, and so, I mean, f for me, in particular, like when I watched Totoro, at the end of Totoro, and, and this time as well when I rewatched it, I, I feel almost heartbroken that it's over because I have entered for 90 minutes the very distinct sensation of being a kid again, being a very young kid experiencing the world for the first time. And when that's over, suddenly that's gone and I'm back in the real world and I'm like, oh man, <laughs> why did I subject myself to that? Because I knew it was coming when I got out of it. <laughs> yeah, even when the kids are in dire situations, like I think of, uh, what's the what's the kid in, uh, in Castle in the Sky? What's his name, the little boy? Patsu. Patsu, Patsu there you go. Um, like he is a way too young child living alone in a landscape and world that seems pretty rough and tumble. I mean, he's basically got to work in a mine. He's child labor or whatever, but he, you know, like, and the, the town is rough and the, it's like in a big valley and everything is made of stone and there are pirates or whatever, you know, it's, it's a mess and he's all by himself. But 
basically when we sort of meet him and see what his deal is he's got his own little house that's a little bit falling down and he plays the bugle for the pigeons that he keeps and he makes himself a fried egg and it's just so hopeful of saying and he's building a plane in his basement right right. (laughs) even if you're totally alone and way too young to be living by yourself and have to work in a mine in in the land of miyazaki instead of that being a grim scary reality that is frightening for children it's like you'll probably also be okay here's half a fried egg no, in fact, it's like the sweetest thing because he's got his own bachelor pad and he's making a plane and, you know, he doesn't mind when he jumps off the building and destroys his ceiling. It's just everything's everything's fine and nothing's... Yeah, nothing that's hurts. the insulation of childhood, that there are going to be scary moments, but in general, everything can be mastered and you can make some comfort for yourself. Because, like, it's kind of... It's not the opposite of Disney movies, but very... You know, Disney movies love to take away the things that children find comfortable to raise the stakes, kill the parents, right. uh, you know, be in a very scary forest, like, sort of do all those uh, triggering type things, uh, and then figure out how to get your character out of it in a very conventional storytelling way. And in the Miyazaki movies, the kids are in incredibly dangerous situations and gunfights, falling from, you know, airships to, to the ground. and Your mom driving you through a tidal wave. <laughs> right. There's always some, this dreamlike feeling that... It's all uh, a grand adventure. Yeah, I was going to say um, adventure. I, I feel like I've got a couple of uh, different uh, sets of, of Miyazaki movie types. I feel like there's the gentle fantasy, and gentle is the word I wanted to throw out there. I think there's a gentility, a gentleness to Miyazaki that encompasses some of the, the childlike perspective, the coziness, the prettiness. It's like, there, and, and not all his movies are super gentle, although I think there's a gentle touch frequently placed on them but i um i also feel like uh to throw in another one is patience that he is he's a very patient director he will take the time to show you doing those simple things sweeping like in uh in totoro the 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 sweeping of the new house or uh baking bread in the bakery and kiki's delivery service or like there are lots of examples of that where it's like we're gonna take the time we're not gonna we're not gonna because the joy is in seeing the thing, right? Not rushing forward away from the thing. It, not not establishing to the audience uh, bread was baked. Like the, the conveying that information to the audience is not the point. Yeah, this like, isn't a movie know, about bread. Let's move on. It's like, well, yeah, it, is it? It, is it not? Maybe it is. It, Maybe people think uh, the movie, movie is what happens when you're making other plans. But in the Miyazaki <laughs> movie, like like that, I, I really feel that when he's making the movie, he's like, well, I guess for the purposes of the movie, probably Kiki should rescue Tombo and then there should be an accident. But really, let me get back to what I'm interested in, which is like, how does she clean her little loft and making pancakes and going and shopping? That one time when the when the lady has a fish pie, right? But right. it's not done yet, so she has to wait, right? Like literally, she has to be patient. She it's has like to wait. a ten minute scene. It's not again. It's not just like, oh, I'm in the kitchen. Well, I'll help you. Fast forward to, oh, it's coming out of the oven, steaming hot. No, it's like, how do we get the oven to work? And how do we make the fish pie? And we got to check on it. And what's going on during that time? And then I got to transport. It's it just... leads into that that thing that that has come up a couple of times here which is the idea that a lot of these movies are a series of incidents and sometimes they string together better than others but you know i think miyazaki would say what is life but a series of incidents and these incidents don't have to be related to the plot of your life so much as they can be informative and beautiful in and of themselves and like kiki and that fish pie is a great example of that like it is important 
because she's a delivery girl and she's being independent, but it's also about like the relationship between the grandmother and the ungrateful, awful, true villain of the movie, uh, granddaughter, <laughs> who doesn't appreciate the stinky fish pie. Uh, to be fair, she was given a herring and pumpkin casserole. Okay, fair. By, fair. by, by a, a poor girl out in the rain while she was in a fancy outfit in her dry, brightly lit house. Yeah, okay, so it's a wet herring and pumpkin pie. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. No, she protected it with the blanket. Yeah, it's it fine. Was, with her, her very life. That, but my point being right like but that is sort of important but it's not it's not like driving the plot forward but it is like a a series of kind of formative things that happen to her and then he and he's just super patient he's like a lot of times when i watch miyazaki movies what i notice as one as an american and two as somebody brought up on american movies is i'm always aware of the tugging on the on the story that is happening because of my expectations. My expectations are tugging on the story like, oh no, this is not how you make this movie. This is not how you tell this story. And Miyazaki is like, (laughs) not like, he is a gentle old Japanese man who stands in between (laughs) me and my expectations and is like, no, no, we're not doing that right now. (laughs) We're going to watch the fish pie. I have a bunch of other ideas. You you will never (laughs) guess what they are. It'll involve a plane. And that leads to some of, I think, maybe what Steve was getting at, too, is is, is some of that feeling as of being a child, I think, is also just of put being in the hands of Miyazaki and having him be like, we're going to do it my way. Yeah, life is inexplicable to, to a child. Kindly Grandpa is going to shepherd you through the cooking scene. I got to pick up some garbage and then I'm going to show you a story, okay? And, and whenever one of these scenes comes along where like I, you know, I, I'll always be like, oh, I, I don't want to watch the 30 minutes of somebody cooking a pie. And then I'll get to the end of it and be like, huh, I didn't know I wanted to watch 30 minutes of somebody mm-hmm. cooking so, a pie. That, that every, every individual moment is a delight. And so you have you have a long series of delights. Like you, you it's impossible not to like the whole, even if you look at it and say, but, but this doesn't make any sense. Like, especially, I, and I think it's more, I mean, I'm, I'll get this later when I get to my kids listing. So this may not be true, but I feel like the more media experience you have, the more you feel what Jason was talking about that tug, because you have expectations based on genre. And like, you know, if you start watching how, and you think it's one kind of movie and you go through that feeling seven different times, like, okay, but is it this kind of movie or is it that kind of movie? It's, it's none of those kind of movies. It's Howl's Moving Castle. And it is very difficult to explain, right? Even when you're, if you're, when you're done, you can say, okay, spirited away. I kind of get what kind of movie that is. But then you go back and look at how it's constructed. It's like, that's not how you make that kind of movie. Yeah. <laughs> not, that's not the way at all. And I, that's why I feel like if you show these to very young children who have less media experience, they have none of those expectations going in. Right. So they don't know how anything is supposed to go. So they just accept it as it comes. Right. And if you go along for the ride, that's why I think you feel sort of childlike while watching yeah. this because you, you, you have to go, you, cause I don't, I don't feel that pull all the time, the narrative pull while I'm watching it. Um, I will get engrossed and then something will bring me out of it and I'll be like, oh, I wait a second. But like when the, when I am engrossed, that is me being swept along by Miyazaki mm. and, and his sort of power to break me out of whatever my expectations are going to be. And, and it's, that's why it's called dreamlike because it's like a dream yes. where it makes perfect sense when you're in it. But then when you try to explain <laughs> like, what the hell it was in the that? morning and like you try to write it down or explain it. So like, the castle gets a Oh, no, I just can't explain it. <laughs> but when you were there, it made perfect sense because you were just delighted by and engaged by the whole thing. I don't know if it made sense. I feel like I made a conscious choice to become a Miyazaki fan. Um, so I got into his movies through a friend, a coworker, and the first he was trying to kind of 
lead me along and he was like okay I'm going to I'm going to loan you Kiki's delivery service and I was like this is delightful and then he's like okay I'm gonna loan you Spirited Away and I watched it and I was like I don't think I understand what's happening. And then, you know, and there's this, I think part of this is just me aging because it's been like 15 years since this all started. But also, like, I think that there's just kind of a, um, a surrender that has to happen mm. as as a Western viewer where it's just like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to go along for the ride. And um, by the time we got to Porco Rosso, I know I missed recording the episode, but I had never watched the movie before I was trying to record the episode, prepping for the episode. And by the time I got there, I was like, yeah, okay. It's it's a man who's a pig. A pig. Blind pig a man. A pig who's a man. <laughs> got it. Pig um, and nobody, Pig's got nobody, nobody else is an animal. Okay, it's fine. It's a Miyazaki <laughs> movie, you know? And it was just like, whatever. This is... Well, aren't we all the real animals, though? I think. <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's an interesting exercise, um, at least for people like me and like a lot of us, I think, who are analytical and we really want things to make sense. It's it's um, it's an interesting experience to come into this and to be like, not only am I going to accept that this won't necessarily make sense to me, but I'm going to enjoy it. Um, it's nice. And they try to make emotional sense too. Like they, like, even if like plot wise, you're like, okay, why was this person doing that? And what is this or whatever? It, it tries to make emotional sense because again, every individual scene, like whatever a scene is going for, if it's scene is going for, you know, a feeling again, a feeling of coziness or a feeling of tension or drama or suspense or whatever. I, I feel like there's very, very rarely any unsuccessful individual scene in any of the movies. Whatever that scene is going for, it hits it. And so, again, if scene after scene don't fit together into a const- construct that makes sense, you were brought along on this journey. Eventually, the movie will get you, no matter how cynical you are, and it will sweep you up, and then you will feel what each individual scene wants you to feel, despite the fact that you may not think intellectually that it connects with the previous one. So when you're done, you have felt a series of feelings fairly deeply and it's really hard to come out and go well i hated that movie i just it's it's very difficult to actively dislike any of his movies if it gets you at all if it it grabs you at all i think also uh to get back to the idea that there's this nice japanese grandfather who's going to tell you what to do um one of the things he's going to do is um make you sit back and uh and appreciate what you're watching and and this aline you talk about analytical people and like almost when i talk about the tension i i I almost talk i'm thinking about like i'm fighting Mm -hmm. and then eventually i relent but i'm fighting for a little while my brain's like no no process what's going on here what's happening and i do think that one of the reasons that i appreciate the beauty of the animation and the beauty of the layouts of miyazaki movies is because of the pace and it's because miyazaki is there to say just watch the clouds man (laughs) <laughs> right yeah. like just just look at the that drop of water on that leaf that's lit by the sun and you can see through the leaf just look at that it, it'll the, the movie will happen just don't worry about it too much and as a result i came out of these movies and i'm like oh my god the clouds they're so beautiful and like do i do that in any <laughs> other animated movie no mm-hmm. not really and, and even and even the characters like those moments also give you a chance to think about what this character must be feeling like it's kind of a cheat and it's like well the character isn't even animated in the scene it's the character is stationary staring up through her clear ohm eye shell looking at the things but at that point you've seen enough of the movie to more or less know what the situation is and by sort of 
keeping the the quote unquote camera on. You see this in real movies sometimes too. Like they'll keep the camera on a close up of an actor's face for a really really long time, so long that you're like, you know, in a conventional movie, you'd be like, well, is the character going to act or do a thing that's going to make? But instead, when you're just looking at the clouds and think, you have a chance to your mind wanders like. What must the character be thinking at this point? What, you know, like the, the characters end up conveying these deep emotions by sort of doing the silent treatment of like, no, I don't have any lines. I'm not going to even particularly act. I'm going to have an expression on my face. I'm going to be in a situation and we're going to stay on it long enough for you to, even if you're super cynical or analytical, for you to think about what it would be like to be that, that person in that situation. And now you, all of a sudden you're feeling feelings. And now you think the static image on the screen is also feeling those feelings. And how did that happen? What is it like to be a turnip head? <laughs> Bouncing really? around like that, and then mm-hmm. your stick gets worn down to a nub, then you yep. turn into a, a foppy prince. I had a, a list here of things Miyazaki likes, because that's the other part of this, too, is that he, <laughs> okay. has, he has the, there are things that are in his movies, and then you realize these are just things that he likes. These are things mm-hmm. that make him happy, and that, that he likes, he wants you to see as well when he when he says, come, you know, stare at this waterfall or whatever. Um, and so here's here's my list. Help, help me out here if there are things that I'm missing. But so nature hmm. is a, like a big overarching. No, no, thing. I think you're wrong on that one. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think he mostly likes industry. <laughs> nature, but also like rural Japan and farming. Really big effing trees in particular. Tr- <laughs> yeah, trees and uh, but also like um, rows of things growing and stuff. Like sure. we think. Uh, I, I think I talked about this in the Totoro episode, but uh, so much American media about Japan is about cities and it's about, it's not about the, the rural natural Japan and Miyazaki, I feel like has a great yearning for rural Japan from his mm-hmm. space in Tokyo where he is working on his movies. Um, and so not just, not just sort of nature in general and trees and stuff, but, but farming and stuff. And then hand in hand with that is, as we talked about from the very beginning, um, clouds and wind and weather in general, which are another aspect of, of the natural world. So I'd say the the natural world, both the landscape of, uh, of a, a natural landscape and also the, the weather are like, I think his top two. And then also airships would be the next one on my right. list. That right. fly. Well, you don't want to skip ruminants when we're, oh we man. Nature. <laughs> well, I, actually before we do airships, pairing with the nature thing though, what I would throw in there is, European-ish cities. Oh yeah, I have Europe. <laughs> Europe is next right. after airships. Yes. Right. Okay, right. because because like he's the big nature guy and he loves like nature and trees and and streams and clouds and everything, but also cities, but not skyscraper. A specific kind of no. city, All right? Go no, on. European <laughs> Europe stuff. European cities, kind of quaint European cities, is definitely yeah. on the list. European-ish because it's not yeah, quite well, right. right. It's like dream Europe. <laughs> Can, can I tell you how weird it was watching Whisper of the Heart today and seeing Tokyo in a Ghibli mm-hmm. film? Yeah. It was such a strange disconnect. It's true. So um, the only other things that I've so obviously children, child characters, often there's they're you know they're they're in it's an animated film that's meant to appeal to kids in in most parts. So it's like they're they're smart, they're spunky, they're often the main characters, or, or they're young, or they're young adults, right? They're not, or they're know. young adults, yeah. But they're often like even then there are often younger kids who are also, uh, like in in a. Porco Rosso. It's like they, he can't help but have the like the girls who are taken hostage mm-hmm. by the pirates, right? Just can't sure. help it because they're adorable. 
So there they are, and they and they and they talk back to the pirates and make the pirates feel bad. It's great, right? But it's like also a Miyazaki thing. And then in addition to gross ruminants, uh, the other one I'll put on my list, uh, <laughs> the last one I've got on my list here is I wanted to say like fantasy, but what I really want to say is fantasy tropes or situations because I think the a through line that I also find in a lot of these Miyazaki movies is he wants a fantasy setting because he wants to do fantastical things, but he's not really that interested in fantasy stories. And I think that's why like Diana Wynne Jones uh, was, was adapted by in Howl's Moving Castle. And I think her response was like, okay. And uh, they <laughs> Ghibli did a uh, Earthsea uh, movie and Ursula Le Guin was like, I have no idea. Right. Like, cause, <laughs> cause it's not, he, he just kind of wants to, take some fantasy elements, but he doesn't really want to tell a fantasy story. I think I think yeah, he just yeah, likes he's, he's the setting. In, he's not interested in who rules like no, middle earth. He's he not just, interested in who he gets he the just power wants the of the magic and, sword and the tropes right? and the it, visuals. What would a toddler thrown into this situation feel like? <laughs> all, all of that is like every, every one of those trappings, like, like it, it's, he's just so little interest in the, like if he did star Wars, he would not be interested in whether the Jedi triumph over the Sith at all. He wouldn't be interested in whether Luke learns to control the force. Like, no, we'd be following a youngling and, and experience, <laughs> Experiencing his feelings yeah. and encountering the right, and all of these things are just like okay, this is the world you happen to live in, and maybe there are witches, and maybe there are airships, and maybe there are you know people who turn into giant scary birds or whatever. Right, but it's all in the service of uh, a very humane filmmaker. It's all in the service of what is this character feeling, and what is what is this character's arc. It's all very much in the service of the humans that are in the world. Right. So, sort of the any kind of plot thing. Lots of science fiction and fantasy books are very interested in the teams it's like sports the good guys versus the bad guys the technology or like a tom clancy book or whatever like and the characters are just there to sort of uh to work the machinery of the story they're sort of at the bellows making it go but miyazaki is the exact opposite the humans are always dead center in every movie and all we care about is what's happening in the humans hearts and mind and i think the the fantasy trope sometimes may just be there in order to create in the audience's mind a sense of childlike wonder of like this is cuz kids don't understand the world around them and so if you throw in some magical rules the audience is going to be like oh i don't understand either and then you're you're in a more in, mm. in a position to be have the world explained to you like you were a child i think i would call it mythology rather than fantasy hmm. thinking about it or even like fables like there's so often uh, there's a moral heart to a lot of the stories, right? Whether it's Kiki's delivery services, you know, you got to believe in yourself and um, in Princess Mononoke and uh, like a lot of them, we need to protect nature. Um, so I, I feel like there are fantasy elements in it, but I would call it or I do think of it as mythology rather than than fantasy. It's kind of maybe it's the grandeur of the fantastical elements that that make me twig onto mythological um, more. But um, I don't know. There's just something. There's just something about the Miyazaki the Miyazaki mythology. I think that that is very fitting uh, as a descriptor of mm. his films because they are all. You know, if you think about, I'm just coming up with this as I'm talking, I haven't thought about this, so I might be a little circular here. But if you think about like 
the things that make Miyazaki films so distinctive that, that that we've talked about, like the art style is very distinctive, even comparing things made in the 80s versus Ponyo. There's still a very distinctive style. There's still, um, like I said, like a moral center uh, uh, to the movies. There's um, there are the moments in nature, the slow moments, uh, uh, the 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 cozy moments, the intense moments, right? They all feel very similar. And so I do think of it as like this, this mythos of this man in movie form, I guess. Yeah. Even in the, the conventional movies, like I think whisper of the heart, which I didn't even direct, but he wrote like, you get the idea that it would be more or less impossible for Miyazaki to do a story in any setting without some, element of what you're describing is the mythos and it doesn't have to be you know like obviously we argue in Totoro whether all that mythological stuff is is real or not because it's seen through the eyes of these young kids but take Whisper of the Heart which is absolutely dead conventional more or less modern day when it was made Tokyo school situation and then there's a bunch of magic cats because it's the imagination of the little girl who's writing right that's a story in her mind and there are extended fantastical scenes in the middle of this quote-unquote realistic movie where there is no magic but in this girl's mind, there is magic. And these elements, you know, are part of her life. And it's like, he just can't do a conventional story with that. Even like with the wind rises there, you know, oh, this is the real world. There's no magic in this world. Constant dream sequences, you right. know, and, and it's it's and I feel like that's how that that if, that's the sort of mythological aspect of like, even if the actual setting is reality, it is impossible for him to make a movie without that in it, because I feel like that's how he sees the world. I was trying to when I was coming up with my ranking here, I realized that Miyazaki, first off, I want to say he makes some different kinds of movies, but the more I think about it, the more I think that there's kind of a spectrum that, that he, that his movies are on. Cause I, I, I put them into little categories, but the categories seem to flow into one another, almost like um, starting with the most sort of gentle, gentle fantasies and then as you progress things get weirder right but also there's more of an adventure aspect that comes in and i would say that they probably get from an ideal i mean i, I i'm an adult watching all these but i would say from an ideal like target audience for a first time viewing of this i think they get a little bit older that that really young kids wouldn't necessarily appreciate them as much, and it's more about adventure, still fantastical elements, and then the further you go on that path, then it's really more of a pure adventure story. It's it's the gentility drops away a little bit, and things get even weirder and even more kind of adventurous. And then I have um, I have one movie down with the wind rises. I feel like isn't even on that spectrum at all because it's a although it's very Miyazaki, it's. You know, it's a movie for adults in in you know basically, uh, and it's a very different kind of and very personal kind of movie. But um, that was the best that I could do. Is that I think that there is a spectrum that runs from your Kikis and Totoros at one end to your Spirited Aways and Princess Mononoke's at the other end in terms of going from kind of the gentleness to the kind of wilder adventure. Um, and what I what I thought about. What I realized about myself is that I have strong preferences within those categories and within mm -hmm. that spectrum in terms of the ones that I really love, the ones that I I like, and the ones that don't do it for me. So, any thoughts about before you know we we kind of judge 
our Miyazaki movies. What do you think about those the, those categories or that that idea of a spectrum from the kind of young and gentle to the more adventurous and wild? I think that makes a lot of sense. And and what's been really interesting for me as I've watched these uh, in the last week or so. When we watch these for the the podcast individually, we watch these in Syracuse order, right? Uh, which was you know based first primarily on uh, how much John actually likes these movies, uh, but also informed to a slightly lesser extent uh, by what he thought was a, a the best order to present these to us. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on any of that, yeah, John. You got it. I think that's pretty accurate, uh, and. Watching these again in chronological order. By the way, I don't. I don't think. I don't think that was the wrong approach at all. I think that was a, a great way to go because I'm not certain if you had started with Lupin the Third, I would have necessarily felt compelled to continue. But starting yeah. with Totoro, I was immediately hooked. So, right. I think that was the right move. But it's very interesting taking it in from a chronological standpoint, where you start off with Lupin the Third, and and my first observation on that was. My God, given how early this is in his career, this is shockingly beautiful and detailed. Uh, but more importantly, and, and more to the point of what you were saying, Jason, is there's a definite flow of of his career as he goes through Lupin and Nausicaa, which are both fairly conventional narratives in, mm -hmm. in the sense that they both make sense. And, and Castle in the Sky, which is probably the most conventional. And then he drops into what I think is really the, the gentle period where you've got Totoro and Kiki back to back. Um, Whisper of the Hearts in there. Porco Rosso is is basically a gentle movie, even with all the you know the shooting down and stuff going on. And then he goes into his weird period <laughs> where you get Mononoke. And he hasn't left. And he is, he hasn't left. Although he well, I would say that his you know most recent film, The Wind Rises, is a is a departure from everything. Yeah. Um, you know, which which may be due to where it is in the chronology and may just be where he is, you know, as a human being at this point in his life. But it, it's it's very interesting to watch the flow of, of the way things work. And even when he returns to what is, you know, a, a fairly gentle conventional movie uh, with Ponyo, that's that's been extremely informed by the weird stuff that he's just been doing with Howl. So it, that's been kind of a real trip for me just to, to kind of take it from that perspective. When I group the things, it's quite, kind of according to what I said before, which is how how conventional is the story? So it, it doesn't quite track what you said, because it's like Mononoke, which you're putting down in the weird period. I file that with conventional, right? I file <laughs> Mononoke, Nausicaa. An odd definition of no. conventional. Ca Castle in the Sky. And nope. what I mean by convention, what I mean by conventional. You've listed three like of the four weird movies, John. <laughs> <laughs> and spirited away too. Throw it in there. So no, conventional. Spirited away, spirited away absolutely does not qualify. What I mean by conventional is not like what happens in the movie or where it's set or whatever. What I mean is just like in terms of storytelling, right? That we set up the conflict and we run through the story in, in more or less coherent fashion without any, uh, you know, really unexpected side trips into things that seem like they're in a separate movie, right? Those movies that I just, you know, Nausicaa, Castle in the Sky, uh, Mononoke, like there is no equivalent to the diversions that essentially make up 100% of Howl's Moving Castle, right? right? Um, and, you know, and they're movies that you could shoot them in live action and it would make sense as like a Hollywood movie, right? Then there are the movies that are just very bonkers, the, the clearly weird ones, right? Even even when they seem like they're trying to tell a conventional story, they just can't do it. I would put Ponyo in there, Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited Away I would put in there because even though it it's kind of a simple story it's like what is going on it is really <laughs> confusing you know like it, in 
if you put it all down on paper, it's really confusing. Yeah, th- this is why I think weird can't be the axis. Right, uh, and right, I'm warming up on the idea of like of like having it be more sort of the gentle, gentle and younger, and then maybe kind of like yeah, I'll say, escalating I'm, I'm not, from there. I don't. Yeah, I know. I know what you're talking about with the gentle axis, but I don't. I, that one doesn't is not how I think about them. I put Kiki, Totoro, and Ponyo in a bucket together, and I know that's weird because Ponyo right. is supposed to be in that bucket all by <laughs> herself. Yeah, the, like the only reason I think about gentleness is when I'm asked to recommend movies to people to very young kids, and then I go 100% for gentleness. Like absolutely start with Totoro, which can be scary because Totoro makes very deep noises, but like that's your best bet to start <laughs> with. And then Kiki is that's and that's gentleness because you don't want to scare children. And lots of the very conventional movies don't have that gentleness. Castle in the Sky scared my daughter. She called it the robot movie because it was scary because the robot shoots lasers out of its eyes, right? But a very conventional, almost Disney-esque simple adventure story, sure. but not gentle, right? And That's same right. thing with Spirited Away. Spirited Away is not gentle at all, no, right? But it is an adventure. That's why. That's why I've got those movies down as adventure, right? Is like they're they're not conventional and they're not. I wouldn't show them to little kids because they are kind of more <laughs> on the for life. on the wild adventure scale. Whereas Ponyo, as weird as it is, is ge- I would say gentle. It's yes. a gentle yep. movie. And what I found. Just to give myself away here, and since we're, we we before we leave, we do have to actually give our opinions about the the best Miyazaki's. I came into Miyazaki having only seen Kiki's Delivery Service and My Neighbor Totoro, and having watched them all, I that is my favorite Miyazaki. I I like the gentle Miyazaki the best, and I like the really adventurous stuff the least. And the stuff that's kind of in the middle is the stuff that I kind of appreciate more even though there's something about it that's a little bit stranger or is there's a little more adventure in it but i find that i'm actually very strongly tied to how gentle is it i like it more and yes people that means i like ponyo after all (gasps) (laughs) i'm still surprised that i liked ponyo i can't believe it i can't believe it at all i hated it the first time i watched it i think the word that i settled settled on when i was trying to determine why i liked certain certain of these films and why I don't like other ones as much was was whimsical there's a whimsical nature to even some of the you know the straight adventure films that I think put them into a different kind of category for me yeah that's fair I I could see that there are definitely things about them that I yeah I can I can totally see that should we do we dare do we dare discuss our favorite Miyazaki's sure have we gotten to that point I I will I will go first because I've already basically given it away um I, I, Kiki and Totoro are tops. You will not find better movies made by humans than those movies. I, I really believe they are among the great works of the 20th century, I guess, 1980s. Right. Um, and f- if I had to pick a third, it's very hard. It might be Ponyo. Wow. <laughs> because it is so delightfully gentle and weird at the same time but honestly there are a bunch of movies that i could slot into if, if we're picking only three because i i feel like Hal's moving castle is close to that again very weird but also kind of delightful castle of cagliostro lupin the third as un miyazaki like is in some ways it's also freaking hilarious and actually a pretty great fun movie and i only have seen it very recently but you know I think there's a lot to be said for Porco Rosso too. But if I had to pick, I would probably just put Ponyo in there so that I had three of a kind with Kiki, Totoro, and Ponyo as the just super gentle. Because in my for my money, 
that is Miyazaki at his best when he's trying to do that movie. And I think what's interesting, having seen them all now, is that Ponyo feels like Miyazaki trying to get back to making a movie like Totoro again with, as as was said just a, a moment ago, but with all of the skills built up over doing super weird stuff over the years. And, and with all the, uh, the potential brain damage of the movies he made between that have really scrambled things up. Right, right. But it, And yet it feels like he's, because you can see that arc of his career where he sort of makes those gentle movies and he's like, all right. I'm gonna break out of this. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make a movie with a flying pig, and then things are getting even weirder. <laughs> and honestly, this is this is something to, on the flip side of that. Um, two the other two Miyazaki movies I had seen going into this whole process were Spirited Away and Princess Mononoke, and they just don't do it for me. I mean, I appreciate the the work that goes into them, and I know that people love them and consider them kind of amazing works of art. I don't like them. I just, I don't like them. I, I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say there's a, you know, that, that I would say it's a Miyazaki movie I dislike, but neither of them, I feel those are on the other extreme of the spectrum for me. And I, I, I just have a hard time liking them. Uh, Steve? Yeah, I've got a full ranking here, but I want to say right out front, I want to just lay it out there that none of these are bad movies. From my perspective, anyway, I I think these are yeah, all uh, yeah. That's that, that's the thing about it when you none look of them at this are list bad movies. It feels bad to put anything in last place, except for maybe Jason, who really doesn't like The Wind Rises. But like, boy, if your failures could be like this, yeah, like it's, right. You know, yep. you're on a yep. pretty good agreed. Track. Yeah, no, these are these are strictly my personal feelings on them, and most of them are based explicitly on feelings because that's all I've got to grab onto sure. when I watch these that's movies. So. That's all we got. That's all we all have, Steve. We all so hey, number one's Totoro. Um, which I think is just pure magic. I, I don't know how they managed 90 minutes in which so little happens to be so watchable. Mm. It's really remarkable. Um, just, just an achievement for humanity, I think. Kiki is not far behind it. That's my number two. This might surprise you a little because I just watched it today for the first time, but I think Whisper of the Heart drops in there right behind there. I don't know if you now you see that. why I snuck it in Yeah, there. I didn't even put that on my list, but I did like it. I did like it a I, lot. I loved it so, so very much, uh, other than the very abrupt ending, which I felt like yeah, was a little unsatisfying. Yeah, the ending is, needs some work. But man, that's a, that's a beautiful movie with a, a lot to think about that I haven't really fully processed yet, but I was so engaged. And I, it's not entirely fair because, you know, we watched all these a while ago and I was just so happy to be watching another mostly Miyazaki movie that maybe I ranked it a little high, but I, it, it felt right falling in right after Kiki to me. I think it shares a lot of sort of uh, the same sort of uh, sense. Um, I put Castle in the Sky next. Hmm. I, I don't think it's a lot of other people's favorite, but I think it's just this fun, straightforward, weird, enjoyable boys adventure tale. And um, I just really enjoy it. Uh, jumping off from that, Spirited Away was next. And I, I'm not sure why. I think just because it's so odd. And um, that one is just a straight up trip. And I, 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 unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to go back and revisit that one because I think I really need to because there's a lot there. But something about just being forced to kind of let go completely and let the movie do what it wants to me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> is is a unique experience I think in film going and, I, uh, I would I would sign on to that. I, I don't I don't have a great affection for that movie, but there I never has there been a movie that I've watched that I have felt more adrift from all reality than Spirited yeah. Away. It's like what yep. what? 
It, it has a way of unmooring you. Yes. And yes. setting you adrift. Yes. Um, afterwards, uh, next up is actually Lupin the Third. I think Castle of Cagliostro is great. I yeah. think you're right, Jason. I think this is uh, is underrated because it just doesn't really fit in with the rest of his canon. But man, that's that is a fun, funny, beautiful movie. Um, and uh, and I think it's great. Um, strangely, I've got Howl's Moving Castle after this. Yeah, I've got it. I've got it ranked really high on mine too. So yeah, that's another one I need to revisit. But it's it's I I dug it, and that was I think a good mix of weird and conventional for me. I think it was just about the right mix. Um, you know, jumping scarecrow that suddenly turns into a prince in the last thirty seconds, notwithstanding. Uh, might have ranked this higher if I'd thought about it. But Ponyo's next, followed by Poco Rosso. Yeah. This is going to make John sad, but here's where I've got Nausicaa. And um, and uh, following that is Princess Mononoke and The Wind Rises, which, you know, not into planes, not into consumption. So, uh, yep. <laughs> so, so, but yeah, with Nausicaa, um, I want to mention, though, since I did get a chance to rewatch this one, is it is a really, really great movie. I mean, I think that is a fantastic watch. The The thing that I made a note of when I finished watching it, though, was... I think I would still rather rewatch any of the other movies that I listed before it. Mm. And it, it just comes down to me preferring that sort of whimsy. And that's that's something that's in short supply in Nausicaa. And uh even though I think it's a fantastic film, you know, it just it's it's just not my kind of film when I sit down to watch one of these. So and that's where that's where Mononoke sits too. Our our lists are not that far apart. And since since I you know I didn't list mine properly, I'll do that here before Lean. So Lean has had lots of time to get her <laughs> top three, which is all that she's required. But my list was Kiki number one and Totoro number two. But again, mm. it's it's gold on any given day. I could flip those two. <laughs> God help me, Ponyo, uh, Howl's Moving Castle, uh, Lupin the Third, Porco Rosso, Castle in the Sky, Nausicaa. Spirited Away, Mononoke, and The Wind Rises. So Mononoke is the one that really just, I, I just shrug at of all of them, which is strange because it was such a breakthrough for, for him. But I enjoyed the heck out of it when I watched it. Just, you know, when I when I saw it coming up next in my list, I was like, hmm, really? Do I really want to watch that again? I guess I do. Aline, how you feeling? <sighs> okay, I'm going to pull in some top four energy here. All right. um, Excellent. So I have a clear favorite. It is, I only had time to rewatch one movie in preparation for this, um, this episode that we're recording right now. And that is Kiki's delivery service. Um, for nostalgic reasons, it is the first Miyazaki film I ever saw. Um, I now have a kitten who looks pretty much exactly like Gigi. So it gets another bonus point because of that. And um, does it talk or no? Um, and if it talks, jury's out. Jury's uh, out. There's like a big Phil debate Hartman. about it. Yeah. Um, Is it a subcat or a dubcat? That's the real question. <laughs> and I don't. There, there's just so much to love about it. So much of the detail that's just delightful. The um, the baker and he's he's like really shy but oh, yeah. really sweet. Like like there's just so much about it that's great. And then um, in second place, it's a three-way tie. I can't oh, pick. I'm so okay. sorry. Um, but I have Spirited Away. Um, sorry, guys. Wow. Howl's Moving oh. Castle is the first Miyazaki film that I ever saw in the theater, and it's still delightful. There's so much about 
um, Sophie that I love uh, in terms of how she's animated, how they transition her from old lady to young woman um, in the span of seconds. Like, it's just so, so good. I love the improbability of the moving castle. Um, I love Calcifer. Um, you know, I know I've read the books, so um, in my head, Howl's Moving Castle makes a lot more sense than it does on screen. Um, but just like the mechanism of Howl moving from place to place is great. Like, it's so, so good. Um, and then Castle in the Sky, I think is beautiful. There's something about um, like a floating utopia that is really appealing to me. Um, and, you know, giant friendly robots, as long as I'm there to help and not hurt. And I think that that's pretty great. So that's, that's um, number one and number two on my list. Very good. Well, John. All right. Well, I'm going to start with like, I did a survey of my family uh, before this, just because I wanted to see, I usually kind of get their opinions on things. And uh, they've, I, I showed my kid these movies, you know, from that's how I have the experience of knowing what you can start your kids on and when, and when, when it might've been too early for my daughter, to, my daughter to see castle in the sky. Tell your kids, we appreciate them taking that trauma so we can yeah. have this information for future right. generations. But, but, they, but they've seen all these movies many times. Um, but the interesting thing is like, so they're both teenagers now and they haven't watched a lot of these movies in a long time. And even though they saw them over and over and over again, when they were very little, like when's the last time they've seen these movies? So I gave them the little list, like little pieces of paper with the titles printed out to, to sort them, um, which is the thing they're used to me doing to them with movies every once in a while. <laughs> and I just, I, you know, no, uh, no prompting, no influence. Here are the pieces of paper. Just put them in order. Um, and then we take a picture of the pieces of paper with their hand in the picture so I can tell which person's list is which, right? Um, I've been doing this for a long time. And a lot of the movies they didn't remember. I'm like, you don't remember that movie? Do you have any idea how many times you've seen that movie? But of course, they saw it a hundred times when they were five, right? They right. were saying, which one is Whisper of the Heart? Cause, and they also they don't know the titles because I would just put them on. It's not like you know. And they would refer to them like, I want, I want to see the robot movie, right? I want to see either the cow movie or the goat movie, or whatever, you know. Anyway, there was some difficulty in them remembering. But independently, both of my kids, one 13, soon to be 14, one 16, soon to be 17. Uh, their top three were identical. Huh. And hmm. these are not, these kids are not the same as each other at all. And so I was surprised by this, but when I thought about it, especially in light of a conversation we have, I think they were identical because their top three are pinned pretty hard on one end of my spectrum of conventional storytelling. They all liked three movies that are very much the most like a conventional modern Hollywood movie. As you would imagine, an American teenager would feel the most comfortable, either the most comfortable saying that they liked and connecting with the most. Like, not going to say that they're the most like Marvel movies or whatever, but they more or less are the most like Marvel movies. Here are their top three for both of my children. Mononoke, Nausicaa, Castle in the Sky, in that order, which is totally unlike anything any of wow. us have said, That's the upside right? down, that's my upside down order, except Spirited right, exactly. Away is also in there, but yeah. But, but you know, those are the most like a the Hollywood movies they're used to. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that they're teenagers. If I ask them to do the same ranking again when they're 40, I really don't expect those three to be on the top. But I was very surprised they would be on the top. And I can tell you, those are not the movies they watch the most. Because, of course, they don't remember. They were very young. But, you know, Totoro's got to be the number one. They saw that movie a million times. But it doesn't. that's a kid's movie to them, I guess. Or it's yeah. too childlike. You know it's what I mean? Childlike. Yeah, so I that's interesting. That. We, as adults, we're seeking out, we're seeking out, feelings right. of 
of childlike wonder. And if you're a teenager, you are not. You're, you're trying to you're get the hell out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. As quick as you can. And I mean, and they had longer lists, and you can see how the rest of them are mixed up in there. And sometimes they had uh, some trouble remembering them. And it gets it gets more mixed after that. But I was very surprised by that. My wife's rankings, on the other hand, will sound a little bit familiar. Kiki Todoropano. There you go. So <laughs> gentle on the gentle axis, she's pinned real hard mm-hmm. to there. Um, she also claims to not necessarily. She's pinned <laughs> gently to the gentle axis. <laughs> She also claims not to remember exactly some of them, but it's like you've been in the house when they've been on a hundred times too. And I just a reminder of the scenes. Right. But uh, so for me now it's uh, like Steve said before, like it's more, it's kind of like the order that we did them on the podcast, but not really because I was trying to sort of ease us in here. So here's my top three. Uh, Kiki number one, which I feel like that was that all of our number ones or was, it was in the top three. No, I had Totoro up top. All right. But anyway, that's clearly great. Number two, and this shouldn't really surprise you if you think about me too much, is Nausicaa. Yeah. Because it's the end of the world. (laughs) (laughs) It's post-apocalyptic. The most beautiful, gentle, delightful end of the world ever. And and it is like this type of movie. I love this type of movie. Right. And as Steve said, this is a great example of this type of movie. And it's a Miyazaki movie. And I can understand how if you look at that, it's like it is it is very conventional, very Picture genre. It's almost... the road warrior. But it's a Miyazaki. With a but, but, every, but, with, but with giant insects and flying wings and little creatures and fox bats or whatever, you know. Yeah. And if you think about that, you know, compared to some of the other movies on the list, it seem it's it's like a castle not castle uh, uh Castle Cagliostro. It's almost like Castle Cagliostro, he did that's someone else's IP. Like it's yep. like, okay, well we have this conventional IP, just make this movie, right? I'll do it, but I'll give Miyazaki flair. It's almost like Nausicaa's like even though it's totally his IP. He wrote the whole thing, like it's his whole comic series that he turned into a movie, right? But it's almost like he is in service of an existing genre, but it happens to be a genre that I love and I think that movie is great, right? And number three, Totoro. So Kiki and Totoro are up there in my top three, bisected by Nausicaa. Here's the problem with this whole list. At any given point, as you said, I mean, Kiki has a pretty firm hold on my number one. But almost everything else in the list is like, well, you could pretty much randomly scramble these. And I wouldn't argue too much except for like one or two that I would force down to the bottom because they're all so close. Yeah, to I have other. six that could on a given day be third place. Right. Um, yeah. And then so the rest of my list now, take this with a grain of salt because I don't really it's hard for me to force rank these. And every time I look at this list, three of them swap in my head. So I don't honestly know how did this go. Um, I put Mononoke after Totoro. I I mean, I really do like that movie. It is very conventional. There's it's if you look at like my rankings on Letterboxd where you do star ratings, a lot of the times movies will get rankings just because like and this is gonna sound weird for me, but it's like I can't think of anything wrong with them. Not that I can't actually think of anything wrong with them, but I can't think of anything wrong with them that's wrong enough to take away half a star even. Right. And Mononoke for me falls into that category. Again, very conventional. If it's not your type of movie, an excellent execution of that type of movie is not going to appeal to you. And it is very conventional and very much unlike Kiki and Totoro, for example. Uh, Whisper of the Heart. Um, you know, that Whisper, the more I look at this, Whisper of the Heart could be climbing up the list, but then the ending is crappy, so it goes down. Anyway, I love Whisper of the Heart. That is my, like a slice of life type movie. Whisper of the Heart is like the prototypical example. I just love it so much. Um, you know, it's have to be in a certain mood to watch it, but I, I love that it just sort of like slowly unfolds and then abruptly and stupidly. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Castle in the Sky after that, uh, very conventional adventure movie, not as good as the other adventure movies, but it, it has some special moments in it. Spirited Away, 
I might push us down farther in the list. It is so spectacular, but it doesn't connect with me in a lot of the same ways as the other ones. But then that train goes across the water. I'm like, okay, all right. (laughs) 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 It's difficult. The Wind Rises is in the middle here, kind of. Again, I could push it around a little bit. I really, The Wind Rises, I put it towards the end of our series just because it felt so much like like a capstone, like that there was this thing he was trying to say but could never quite say. And Jason would say he still hasn't quite said it, but Mm -hmm. it was so clearly like sort of a more adult, sophisticated movie. It's obviously beautiful and very interesting and actually does have a fairly conventional story. And it's weird that it's two stories in one, both from the source material and in the finished product of like, there's a love story. And then you're building planes to kill people and you put them all together and it's not Reese's, right? It's, 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 It's something else, but I don't know. Maybe I would shift that one down a little bit. Um, How's Moving Castle, which I liked much less before we did this podcast series, and now I like much more than I did because it's like just winning me over. It's, it's, it's a grower. It really is. <laughs> yeah. Castle Cagliostro, which I feel bad about having down so low, but it's not my type of movie, even though it is a good execution of that type of movie. Uh, then we come down to Ponyo, which is gentle and delightful, but I just I find it's weird, and I find it both weird and sometimes somehow a little bit off putting. I don't blame Ponyo for it. Maybe it's just me. Well, that's exactly I how I felt the first time I watched it, but the second time I was kind of entranced. I was like, "All right, Ponyo loves ham, and Jason got loves me. Ponyo." That's I love Ponyo exactly right. I've seen Ponyo like a hundred times, so it's not lack of nope. watching it. That and it, it was Ponyo was super high on my kids' list too. Like it was like number four or five yeah. on both of their lists. So it's doing it's something. It's adorable. Right. Yeah. And then finally, Porco Rosso. Not that I have anything against it, but I just feel like all the other movies do the same thing it does, but better. So one question on this order, John. When I was I was looking at the way that you introduced us to these films, and I remember, I, I, I don't even know if I was signed up for the Totoro episode, but like I happened to find it on some service somewhere, and I was like, oh, I'm kind of curious about that. And I started it up, and I was like, what is this kindergarten crap? You know, when it opens with the Let's Go song, and you know, there's the like the... <laughs> kid walking by and it's I almost stopped right there and and it's so juvenile in the early going. But then you saw the little the little salamander going underneath the little log and you're like oh that is cute. No. No it wasn't until I got out of the credits and the song was over and then you know we we were introduced to our main characters. Did you watch the song in English or in Japanese? Because in, in Japanese. English it, sounds, in English it sounds even cornier. Oh it's much much worse in English. I'll, I'll yes. get to that in a, in a bit because I do want to talk about dubs versus subs again at some point but but, but but so my question is what was your thinking in a leading with Totoro instead of Kiki when Kiki is your top? Right. I feel like Totoro it's what I tell everyone to lead with with their kids because it it's probably so what you're saying actually, is we're like kids to you. It probably actually isn't the most gentle, but it's it's super famous. It's like the logo of the studio. Um, and if you don't, if if Totoro doesn't do anything for you, you just just stop, right? So so, <laughs> so I I, th- I feel like you have to start with Totoro. It is just it is just so singular and iconic, and it also is a good entry point, right? See? And I didn't want to start with Kiki's because you don't want to start with the one that you love the most because if people aren't used to People aren't used to Miyazaki. They're just going to, you know, not, it's not going to work for them, right? So Totoro was my entry point. Oh, okay. So, so Totoro was your weeder course, basically. A little bit. Because I, I think you could have started with Kiki and it would have been fine. I, 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 well, here's the thing. I know so many people who have seen and loved Totoro who just, Kiki, they're just like, either never heard of it or it does nothing for them. And so what? I really just what? wanted to, I, How is that I don't even understand it either. Broken. I, it's the number yeah. one on my list, but Those like, people I, need to be discarded from We haven't life. even mentioned how, um, we've all just let it there that, that Aline didn't put Totoro on her list at all. I'm just. It's. Well, she only did four. I only did four. Yeah. I know. 
and none of the, and none of them were Totoro. <laughs> but, but, she had, Totoro. but she Gasp. had Kiki. Like I feel I feel like Kiki and Totoro are you know, and I guess Ponyo in terms of the gentleman's axis. But Kiki and Totoro try to do a lot of the same things in a in a different structure. And so okay. when she's got Kiki on the list, I feel like you've that she's redeemed her humanity. Well, and here here's the secret. <laughs> These four, my, the four movies that I picked are also the four four Miyazaki movies I saw first, um. and I think that my nostalgia for them and um, it, uh, the fact that they helped me through some really rough crap uh, really helps like elevate their rankings like they're weighted probably a little bit higher than they would have been if I just watched for the incomparable. Yeah. All right. Uh, Makes sense. That's fair. But yeah, you know, I feel like Totoro is it's just it's just such a strong start, right? It's you, num- you know, even if it's not going to end up being people's number ones. Yeah, I just I feel like there's more of a danger of being turned off by the sort of the nature of Totoro than there is with Kiki. But maybe I'm wrong because you say there are people that like Totoro and not Kiki, and I I find that inconceivable. But if you say it happens. But I'm saying, like, if you have to watch it for a podcast, you're probably just going to power through the credit. And honestly, it's not like you needed to watch halfway through for it to grab you, right? You just get through the credit. No, no, no. It's, it's true. But, I mean, I could see if you if you wanted to, if you went in kind of with a with an overly critical eye, sort of hoping to dislike it, if you're that sort of person, not that I am, but uh, I think there's a, a greater chance of being turned off by Totoro than there is by Kiki for, for most people. But, you know, I could be wrong about that. But it won you over, Steve. And now you're the star student which is why you can tell us all about <laughs> subs versus dubs. Yes, I watched the subtitles for all of these when I watched them. Um, and for the first couple, Totoro and Kiki, I also went back and watched the dubs. I stopped doing that after a while because I felt like there was sometimes such a distinction between the two that I was getting confused as to which of the two different movies I was I was talking about at any given time. So from there on, I stuck to the, the subtitles. Um, and, and that's just, you know, personal preference for me. I feel like I want to be as close as possible to the original, uh, uh, you know, um, way that the film was presented. And, and that includes, even though I don't understand it, the, the original Japanese voices. Um, and, and, uh, as I've been watching through in preparation for this, I decided, well, you know, I'm going to finally go back and I'm going to watch the dubs. Um, I will say this, I like the dubs better than I did now. Um, but I still, for me, feel like the subs are so vastly superior, uh, for the way I want to watch the movie. And it's, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. One that I've touched on in the past is that often when they moved over and did a dub version, and it might just be like the Disney dub version or, or one of the specific dub that I happen to have watched, but they'll, they'll age up one of the characters. Like, uh, I really, really loved Castle in the Sky the first time I watched it. And this, when I watched it this time, I, it, it dropped a little in my estimation. And I think that was entirely because the voice of Patsu, uh, James Vanderbeek, Dawson, his own bad self, uh-huh. is just way too freaking old. Uh, uh, part of what makes that movie work for me is the fact that it's so absurd that this kid is like a, a nine or a 10 year old and he's having all these fun adventures. And when you age him up to James Vanderbeek levels, suddenly it, it has a completely different cast to it. Um, and I feel like I'm watching, instead of watching two real young kids having an adventure, I'm watching two sort of teens or preteens and they're really oddly sized preteens compared to the people around them. Like they should have grown a little more at this point. And it's just, it's really off-putting in terms of 
at least the way that I saw the movie the first time. Um, so, so sometimes that, that sets me off. And sometimes it's things that are just a little more subtle. Um, like in the case of just, just one example that I came across, because there were several times as I was watching the, 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 uh, the dubs this time that I would go back and I'd watch again and, and throw the subtitles on because I was thinking that I, that's not how I recollect that happening before. And there's just, there's a, there's a moment in Totoro where, uh, Satsuke is, is searching for May and she's running down, uh, uh some, some rows of things growing in rural Japan. <laughs> and, uh, mm. and she says to herself in the dub, I shouldn't have yelled at her. It's all my fault. And I went, that doesn't feel right to me. So I went back and I looked at the subtitles and the subtitles were stupid May always getting herself lost. <laughs> and that is such a completely, I mean, it, she's saying exactly the same thing there, but in two very different ways. I mean, she's basically blaming herself, but she's, she's, she's putting on like, you know, it's May's fault, but really she's expressing a great deal of guilt. And it's, it's just such a, a more subtle and I think kind of a rich way of getting that across. And it, it seems to happen a lot in the English dubs. And I, I get the impression that sometimes when things are dubbed over, they, they dumb it down a little more than I, I would like. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've learned to like the dubs more and I really appreciate that you don't have to concentrate quite as hard on it when you watch it that way. But I would say if you're going to engage with these movies for the first time and you're you're willing to put in that little bit of extra work. I, I feel like the subs are still vastly the way to go. Well, part of the reason I didn't sort of make subs a required part of the curriculum for this course is because in the end, I just want people to watch these movies, right? And if the dubs were awful, maybe I would have a stronger opinion, but like maybe the one good thing to come out of like the Disneyification of these movies in terms of getting gobbled up by a giant Western corporation is they did sometimes to a fault try to hire good actors to do the dubs and do a good job with them so even though many of the dubs are like you said very different very very different they can be different in ways that are good i love the original kiki i also love uh the one with phil and, hartman and they right? were it's they, very very different and they were but supervised good they were supervised by people who love miyazaki and you know the like what didn't neil gaiman work on the house moving yep. castle mm -hmm. like uh, i think yeah i mean th there is a level not just in the uh the voice talent which is i i would say kind of unnecessary that famous people are doing the voices they're good at it it's fine Some, but, sometimes distracting but it's sometimes distracting but like sure. i think they're well made I always chose to watch a dub for the first time for a couple reasons. One is it's easier to navigate a movie for the first time. I thought just it's in English. I'm not bothered by dubbing of animation because, uh, you know, uh, we've been through this before, but like it's a translation to English either way. And uh, it's an animated movie. So, you know, they, they the mouths don't match right anyway, right? It's because it's animated. So it just isn't a problem for me. However, what I do is if I have seen a movie and I've, I, I've really liked it, then I want to engage with it more deeply. And that's when I will watch it again with the original Japanese and the subtitles. And so I've sure. done that with the ones that I love, especially Kiki and Totoro. I've watched those more than once uh in japanese with subtitles and you're right, right it is a very different experience and it's kind of delightful because the voice choices are often very different but for a first time through i just find it very easy to do it that way there is not a wrong way to watch whether you choose to watch with the subs or the dubs i think either way you're going to get a, a great experience 
for, for me, you know, I, I like the subs. If you like the dubs, that's great. Well, one thing I did want to say is the one that blew me away was how good the dub on Totoro is with uh, Dakota and Elle Fanning. Mm-hmm. That, that movie completely Creepy. lives or dies on how appealing the two girls are, and I absolutely adore the two Japanese voices. And I was fully prepared when I watched the first time to 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 feel like it, it fell down in comparison. And I, I was amazingly impressed with the job they did on that one. So, you know, it, it varies by the quality of the dub, and that one is certainly a standout. Yeah, and the other aspect for, you know, the subs versus dubs for me is because these movies, the, the most times I've seen these movies is showing them to my kids when they were young, before they could read. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that I always watch them with the subtitles, in fact, I had seen many of these with like various fan subs sort of downloaded from the internet that didn't match the Disney subs because fans would re-subtitle themselves to be as accurate, quote unquote, accurate as possible to the original Japanese. You know what I mean? Um, so I'd seen many different subtitled versions of these as my first thing. But then I saw these movies dozens of times in the dubs. And in my mind, very often, especially Totoro and Kiki, I hear the dubs because I saw the subtitles ones three times and I saw the dubbed ones 150 uh-huh, times. Yeah. Right? So they, they cement themselves in your memory in that way. And that's why I'm glad that the dubs are, for the most part, good. I totally agree with Steve, though, that the they do this much less in Miyazaki movies than they do in other anime, believe me. But the dumbing down, even to the point of inserting lines that didn't exist right. to try to tell the dumb Americans what's going on so they yeah. understand what events are happening or what people are feeling. It's like, oh God, we get it. Like, especially when there's no characters on screen, they can just insert dialogue all they oh, want because yeah. you're, right. you know, showing, you know, and that, that I, I feel like it does take away from the movie and it's unnecessary and in some ways insulting. Yeah. Some of the biggest offender of the ones that I watched in that respect was probably Cagliostro, which I'm sure was not in, in any way related to Disney, whichever one I happen to be watching. And the biggest problem, as you say, with that one is there are these long moments, and this happens frequently in Miyazaki movies, where nothing is said uh, on the Japanese track, and you're just supposed to quietly marvel at whatever beautiful thing it is that you're seeing, you know, the cloud or the uh, the goat chewing in your face or whatever that is. And the dub of, of Cagliostro in particular just spews unnecessary Banter. exposition all over yep. these scenes yeah, yeah. and just ruins them. And, and the, the rest of the ones that I watched, the, certainly the Disney-supervised ones, that did not happen to at least enough of an extent that I noticed it, so... Yeah, if you watch them enough, you'll 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 pick out the individual moments, kind of like watching Star oh, sure. Wars versus the special editions. When you memorized every nuance, you're like, "That's wrong. That shouldn't be there." But you know, it, for the most part, they're not bad per se. And then the other thing is the characterization, right? So that very often, there are characters in these movies that, if you've watched a lot of anime, are sort of you know cliche trope characters in Japanese animation. But there is no equivalent to that in the American one, so they insert an American version, mm-hmm. right? So like Billy Bob Thornton ends up in Mononoke, which is not at all like how that character mm. like the like the Japanese one is not a Japanese version of Billy Bob Thornton at all, right? But there's just no equivalent to that. Like in general, like the the characters may sound sort of meaner or more more like angry or gruff or short, whereas the American one will be the American characters will be more charming. Like because I feel like the American actors feel like it's their job to be appealing or charismatic. And very often there are certain characters that aren't expected to be charismatic, right? In in these you know sort of cliched Japanese characters, and I that's where it feels like sometimes you're watching a different movie. Sometimes it's even the main character or the main antagonist is mm-hmm. characterized in a very different way. For the, but, um, but for the most part, though, I feel like the dubs are self consistent, 
and so are the originals in terms of okay well here's a set of characters that all fit together even if one of them is billy bob thornton like you just you know you just accept him in the movie because like well he's with a bunch of american actors speaking english and it all kind of holds together and then the japanese one fits because all those characters feel like they fit with each other i obviously prefer the dubs but i it's kind of like a cars a pixar movie that my son watched even more than miyazaki movies which is not one of my favorite pixar movies but it is now inextricably bound up with my love for my son so it is impossible mm-hmm. for me to dislike that movie like physically impossible because he loved it so much um and in these movies it's impossible for me to dislike the dubs of the ones that my kids watch because Every time I hear them, I just see my kids on the couch watching the movies. Right. I will be glad your kid is just not a little bit younger so you could have enjoyed Cars 2 as much as I did. <laughs> God, thank God. Yeah. Thank God they grew out of that. I, let me tell you about the Wiggles. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Please don't. Oh, boy. Uh, the Anything else before we go, before we wrap it up? Um, well, we need to talk about this because people complain that we didn't talk about it before, and I think it's uh, it's uh, valid. All right. So let's, uh, does the cat talk at the No. Sorry, that's not it's is this simple analogy in the form of SAT? Do you know SATs don't have analogies anymore? Anyway, I I think they should. They're fun. Uh, Joe Joe Hisaishi is yes. to Miyazaki uh, as John Williams is to Star Wars. Right. I would say even more so. I I somebody might be able to do a, a reasonable uh, impression of what John Williams does, but I don't I don't think there's another Hisaishi yeah, out his, there. His work is so varied and so strong. We just take it for granted that every one of these movies has beautiful music. Like, yeah. And here's the thing that blows my mind, and, and uh, whether this is true or not, my impression from the, watching the making of things is that he comes in later and adds the music, more or less after the Like, the, the, the music doesn't exist when they're making the movie. And it, it seems, the music seems to fit so perfectly with the movie. You're like, surely this was made in concert by one hive mind. And that's apparently not how it works at all. And I don't understand it. He's... He's so good. He never sets the wrong foot. It doesn't matter what's happening or what kind of movie it is. His music is just perfect and effortless and not all the same. Like it varies so much from movie to movie, depending on what's called for in a way that even I would say John Williams is a sameness to it, which is fine for a single franchise like Star Wars. But Miyazaki is not Star Wars. There is no one franchise. This is not Star Wars. This is not the MCU. There is. If you tried to make a cohesive universe that encompasses all Miyazaki movies, you'd basically have to fall back to Aline's mythology thing, because it's like, well, it doesn't. They don't even really hold together individually. Overall, there's an overarching mythological kind of vibe going on, but this is not Star Wars. Yeah. What my first note on uh, what I wrote down, I just threw a few notes down there for each of these, and and for Nausicaa, I wrote down, I remember almost nothing about what happens in this movie, but I will never forget that little La La song. (laughs) 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 I was thinking back, what was Nausicaa about again? I sort of remember there were big insects and, uh, you know, there was a little one that gets killed. The credits music, the credits music, God, like it's so, so perfect, perfect for that kind of movie. You could take that music and drop it directly into a live action movie in the same genre and it would fit perfectly. I I would say the one small Hisaishi misstep would be in Nausicaa and Castle in the Sky where he kind of in- integrates the Casio keyboard in a little too much. How dare but, you? Yeah, they were, it was the 80s. Yeah, I know, oh, I know, 80s. I know. I know, it, it makes sense in the context of the times, but you know, you you, you realize it's the 80s in a way I that you know. don't realize. I, I admit there's, I have a nostalgic connection to that because I lived through that period, so it doesn't seem like retro. It seems like, yeah, you know, that's 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 a found that's a foundational noise in my uh in my media vocabulary. But but even those little beep boops I think are perfect for the scene they're in. That's just that like, you know, I know I know I'm in the eighties when I watch these movies. Yeah, they, they, they are definitely a contrast to again the opening theme and the credits theme. That's yeah. another thing that I would think about with these movies we should mention. Uh 
I love he has the best opening credits of any movie maker period like it's not even a contest there are some opening cre- you know I'm I'm big on openings and closings but I love his credit sequences like yeah, Nausicaa is probably one of my you know top ones and then I also love his post credit sequences which is not his thing tons of people do post credit sequences but how delightful is it to see the con- to, to get the payoff of Kiki and now she has friends and Tombo's flying his thing and she can fly again and she's delivering stuff that's all post credit sequence exactly right and the, the little the little kittens that they have to get that's just i you know that's it's not in every movie right but like opening credits so strong in some of these movies and the closing credit sequences is just perfect when they're there so satisfying I'm sure you guys talked about this when you did Whisper of the Heart, and I'm also aware that it's not possibly not entirely Miyazaki's doing, but the ending credits of them, you know, the various characters meeting on the dam above the opening or the closing credits is just so masterful. It's just such a wonderful example of that. You get, you know, your your plot tie-ins, and I think just a lovely way. Mm. When I started in on rewatching these, Obviously, I started with Lupin since I was going chronological, and at the time that I wanted to watch it, uh, all of the other screens in the house were occupied, and I was it, that was, uh, I think, the one film that I don't have a Blu-ray of, so I was going to watch the Netflix version, and I happened to be buying my VR helmet, so I popped that on and watched it in VR um, on uh, PlayStation VR, where when you're just watching a movie, you're basically like in the second row in a movie theater, and you're watching this enormous screen. Right. Um, the experience of watching these beautifully detailed watercolory kind of backgrounds on a screen that's massive, even if it happens to be, you know, in a helmet that you're you're watching, is such a mind blowing experience. I mean, I I was watching these opening uh, opening credits again of uh, of Lupin and just going wow and then you know they're on the they're sitting on their stupid little fiat in front of like a sunset and there's ships going by and i just kept going wow hmm. and uh it's 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 exciting to me because when i do go back and revisit these films again uh you know i have a means now to watch them on a large screen in this way and appreciate them in that way and i i I, I would recommend it to people whose eyes can take watching a movie in VR. If the, if your eyes don't start to bleed after 45 minutes in a VR helmet, it's a really solid way to sort of replicate that uh, in the theater experience that most of us will never get to have with these movies. Well, so that's what I was saying. Back when we can all go back to movie theaters, hopefully, eventually, uh, I would highly recommend if you're anywhere near like a big city, occasionally they have like little revivals yes. at major movie theaters where you can see, you know, the anniversary of Mononoke. Or Spirit. So usually the, the ones that are big here it's always going to be like spirited away mononoke totoro or whatever very rarely if you if you have some place of an art house theater maybe you'll get a kiki's or whatever but take those opportunities to see them i i've seen a bunch of these on the big screen various times i saw a few of them when they were released but most of them in revivals and it is a very different experience that now you're going to end up being in the theater especially with an obscure one with a million rabid Miyazaki fans, which yeah. I don't think is exactly the ideal experience to watch a Miyazaki movie. <laughs> going to right. mention that. There were right. none of those in my VR helmet. Right. It is what it is. But some of them really do have, like, as, as beautiful as they are and as Lillian said, as pretty as they are, put them on a big screen and it just it just magnifies. Because you know what it's like in a movie theater. You get, like, you, it's, there are no distractions. It's dark. Eventually, it just becomes you and the screen, and the screen is so big, and the sound is so big, and the music is swelling, and it's it really does, you know 
keep your attention. You won't be distracted by your phone or, you know, something else going on or whatever, as, as good as your, you know, movie setup might be. It really helps you get wrapped up even more. And it is also a very different experience. Certain things that you can look at and be detached from, you know, like scenes of suspense or action, grab you more when they're like 50 feet tall. Right. It's the same exact scene, but the power of, you know, it's the same for any movie, not just Miyazaki movies. Like I, I saw gravity in the theater when it first came out and I also saw gravity at home and the experiences do not compare. Right. And that's a movie that, you know, is more straightforward, but it's vastly healthy or interstellar. Another example. So interstellar and IMAX, a movie that I actually like despite its weirdness. And then also interstellar at home and they just don't compare. <laughs> so most Miyazaki movies do work perfectly fine on a home screen, but if you have the chance, definitely just, find time somehow if we ever actually come out of this thing to see it in the theater yeah i was fortunate enough to see a uh when my kids were younger um the uh, there was a kids uh there was a parents column in the san francisco chronicle and they did a showing at uh a local theater that is one of those it was an early uh kind of pizza and beer theater um and they did a, an afternoon screening of uh kiki with uh parents and kids and pizza and you know we were, were eating pizza and, and drinking soda it was the afternoon and uh it, it's amazing right it, it really is a magical thing to to see one of these movies especially if you've seen it before but it's always just in your living room to see it in a context with other people and on a big screen it's it is fantastic so i agree highly recommend it if you can get a chance to see a miyazaki at your at, at a theater sometime in the future when it's playing in a theater and you're comfortable going to the theater, it could be great. And if not, there's VR helmets. Try hey, it. Strap it on. Sure. All right. Um, I think we will probably watch some movies that are in a similar vein to this in the uh, in the future for this podcast. Even And of course, there is that that uh, next Miyazaki movie out there if, if and when it arrives. Um, so we'll be back in some form or other. But I think we have officially closed the book on the Miyazaki Club, at least for now. Everybody uh, put your tassel on the other side of your mortarboard. Oh, oh no, there's a flock of geese passing by that just spotted my tassel. Uh, They're descending on me, no! no. They're attacking! Watch out for that goat! Uh, let me thank my panelists one last time. Aline, Sims, thank you very much. I would like to thank Mr. Miyazaki for allowing me to dream about Totoro when my cat is laying on me at night. Mm. Steve Letts, thank you. Thank you, Jason. Uh, thank you, John, for leading us through this uh, this canon. Uh, it has very much opened my eyes to um, the possibilities of, I, I don't want to say anime for sure, but animation made in Japan, although it has also uh, probably set me up for disappointment when I move on from Miyazaki. <laughs> You liked Whisper of the Heart, which is about school kids in Japan. Let me give you a little tip about anime. That's a very common theme. <laughs> I've played a lot of Persona, so maybe you've, you've got something there. And John, thank you for doing this. Thank you for uh, being the only person to be on that Miyazaki episode all those times ago, and I'm glad we got to watch them all. Well, yeah, maybe uh, even though Steve might get valedictorian, I'd like to give you, Jason, the perfect attendance oh, award. Thank you. Aww. Thank you. Thank you very Damn, much. I missed Whisper in the Heart day. Yeah. Uh, and thanks to everybody out there for be uh, for being on this journey with us. And if you have not seen all these movies yet, well, we, there's an episode about each one of them. <laughs> and, what are you waiting for, you knucklehead? And they're on streaming now, so you have no excuse. Go back now that they're all available. That's the thing. If I could leave you with any thought, it's this. I'm so glad these are more broadly available now. 
Go watch them. They all, even the ones that we liked less than others, they all have fascinating things in them. They're all worth watching. And then you've got a guaranteed incomparable episode after you're done watching it so you can hear us talk about it, sing songs about it, point out goats and clouds and all of those other things. Although Uh, I would say if you're listening now, perhaps you've done things in the wrong order. I think so, but you go back. Just go back. All right. Or do it again. Sure, why not? I don't know. Uh, But uh, we will be back next week with something entirely different. But thank you for being here with us. And the Miyazaki Club is signing off. Bye. Bye.